It's good to see everyone's faces this morning, and it is exciting to continue on through this series. Uh, we've been in Mormonism. This is our second week in Mormonism as we evaluate, assess the cults in light of uh, Christian orthodoxy. So what I would like to do is just open in prayer. I think what I'll do is I'll read the Athanasian Creed once more like we did last week, um, and then we'll, we'll get into some comparison and contrast with these five distinctives that we looked at last week of uh, Mormonism. We'll contrast them, compare them with uh, Christian orthodoxy. So let's pray. Our God in heaven, we uh, do pray and beg of you to, to come and to be with us and commune with us this morning, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to your word, that you would edify your people and bolster them in the true things of the Christian faith. Lord, we pray that uh, we would come to a more thorough understanding of what we confess and that we would become more discerning with regard to those errors and heresies that loom large today just as they did uh, many, many years ago. Uh, We pray that you would bless us and keep us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read this creed once more because, again, the core issue here, even though it's number two, the core issue here is the difference between what we would confess to be God and what Mormonism confesses to be God or gods. And so that's actually the most fundamental issue at stake here. And the Athanasian Creed just does such a great job of uh, expounding upon Uh, a really full-throated Trinitarianism. And I'll just begin uh, with uh, the creed itself. Uh, We read the preface last week. I'll just begin with the creed. This is the faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one their glory equal their majesty co-eternal what quality the father has the son has and the holy spirit has the father is uncreated the son is uncreated the holy spirit is uncreated the father is immeasurable the son is immeasurable the holy spirit is immeasurable the father is eternal the son is eternal the holy spirit is eternal and yet there are not three eternal beings there is but one eternal being So, too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. And I'll go ahead and stop there. Even though we can predicate a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they are immeasurable, the Father is immeasurable, eternal, etc. The Son is immeasurable, eternal, etc. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable, eternal, etc. Yet we're not implying in that language that they're three different beings. They are one being subsisting in three personal relations. Uh, the older language would be um, peculiar properties or personal properties. Unbegottenness, begottenness, and uh, a procession from father and son. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, let's go and look at some comparison. Just by way of brief review, we did look at five uh, distinctives of Mormonism last week, and I have them listed up here on the board. I actually got to the board before uh, class started this morning, was able to Uh, preempt some of what we're covering here. 
uh, but we already looked at these last week. So you look at one, two, three, four, five. First, church was lost after the first century. You'll remember that after the first century apostolic ministry, the claim by Joseph Smith and the others is that the, uh, the church structure and therefore what the church would have passed down was lost uh, in the first century. Until conveniently it reappears and there's a reconstruction that takes place uh, in 1830. All right. And so uh, that's that's for all practical purposes. That's one of the most fundamental distinctives because it allows them to really come the 19th century. It allows them to customize essentially their own and tailor their own religion, uh, build their own religion. If everything was lost at the first century, then who's to say what Christianity truly is and what Christianity truly should be? We're all ignorant. We don't know what it is. So we must now rely on these prophets who begin to arise with Joseph Smith in the 1830s. Secondly, there are three different gods in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father and Son are physically embodied um, beings, two different beings. The Holy Spirit is the only spiritual being in the quote-unquote Godhead. We talked about how you know they use a lot of the similar language, a lot of similar terms to what we use, but when you open up the hood and you start to investigate, uh, you realize that they're very different. We'll look at that difference here this morning. Thirdly, Adam is ancient of days. Um, we know that that's spoken of God, uh, particularly God the Son. Fourthly, Adam should be praised for the fall, contends Mormonism, because if he didn't fall, there would be no redemption or possibility of spiritual progress for us. So we ought to praise Adam for the fall. We'll see how that's uh, grossly erroneous here in a moment. Fifthly, grace after works. Remember, grace only happens. You only have access to grace. One, in, one, one is able to lay hold of grace only after they have expended their own best efforts. All right? So you must expend your best efforts first, then you get access to grace. All right? And that's Pelagianism, uh, just rethought in Mormon terms. How are we to think about these things as Christians? Um, and this is where we're going to look at uh, scripture. We're going to look at uh, what Christians have always believed. Uh, throughout the last 2,000 years of, of church history. Um, we're going to begin with number one, the claim that the church was lost after the first century. The claim that the church was lost after the first century and remained lost until the time of Joseph Smith in the 19th century, specifically in 1830. A Christian response to this claim would say, we have a major problem with this because our Lord and Savior himself promises to build his church. In Matthew 16, if you turn to Matthew 16, verse 18 really, but there's some context to that. We'll look at it here in a second. If you turn to Matthew 16, You'll see Jesus' question to his disciples. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He asked them first, who do man, men say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter speaks up for the rest of them. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus in verse 17 says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven 
then verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I'm of the opinion that the rock is the confession that Peter issues, not Peter himself. Roman Catholicism would suggest that the rock is Peter himself, that Peter functions, therefore, as the first pope, and that there is an apostolic succession represented in the papacy and the College of Bishops from the first century onward. So I don't think that's what's being meant here. I think what is the rock, and Peter is, is named uh, as the one who uttered this confession, but the rock ultimately is the doctrine. It's the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And on this rock, on this profession, on this confession, on this doctrine, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I uh, sent you in your emails. I didn't have an opportunity to print them out, uh, but everyone that has an email... Um, and has used it to correspond with me or has been in previous mailing lists uh, with the church, you received this, uh, this email with a, a grid, the same outline that I'm using here, uh, the grid of comparison contrast uh, between uh, Mormonism and Christian orthodoxy. And uh, you'll actually have a little bit more than I have in, in my outline because I decided to add uh, a second bullet point uh, to... Uh, this section where we're looking at Jesus's promise to build his church. So the first bullet point was just that text that we read. The second bullet point is what I would like to uh, call the four marks of the church. The four marks of the church are uh, as follows. And this is the four marks of the Christian church. Um, You have unity. And I will say unity or union with Christ. So oneness, per Ephesians 4. Um, Then you have, uh, let's see, holiness. Walking in gospel ordinances. So you have the administration of the ordinances there. Three would be termed Catholicity, I've qualified this word before, it doesn't mean what the Roman Catholics say it means, it means the one faith, you're able to find yourself within the stream, within the church that that Christ promised to build doctrinally, it's built upon a confession, do we confess that confession, Christ is Lord, Christ is God in the flesh, and so on, apostolicity. is the fourth mark. Mormonism cannot claim adherence to any one of those marks of the church. All right, those marks of the church are very historical. They're, they're ancient. I would say they're biblical. That Each one of them can be proven from Scripture in different ways. Mormonism, and it's very useful for evaluating, can this or that religious sect or can this or that uh, person or group of people fit in with what Jesus Christ promised to build, right? Um, and, if, and if they can't, if they can't meet those marks, then they're not a true church, right? If they can't meet those marks, they're not a true church. They're not part of the project that Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16, verse 18, 
All right. Gospel unity, ordinances, Catholicity, apostolicity. It's hard to say. Apostolicity, we could expand on that more. Um, basically, the erroneous version of this would be apostolic succession by way of popes uh, or even by way of local churches. Uh, there's the Roman Catholic version of apostolic succession would say, uh, well, we need to be able to trace our history through the popes and the, and the bishopric, right? And then you have like the trail of blood that would take that same principle and say, well, we need to trace our history through local churches, right? Be able to find our, no, the, the concern with Matthew 16, 18 is that you find yourself within the teaching of apostolic doctrine, the faith, all right? Not a visible institution, that has been uh, around throughout history, but that you find yourself within the faith, the true faith. Okay. Mormonism cannot uh, match themselves into any one of those categories. Union with Christ. We saw how they have a different gospel. Grace is only administered after one exerts their best efforts. So they don't have a true gospel. That would, that would nix number one. Number two, holiness, walking in gospel ordinances. Uh, they've added ordinances through their prophets. Um, and not only that, but the ordinances that they would claim are biblical, coming from the Old and New Testaments, they have corrupted and walk in uh, those ordinances in a way that would not fit with the scriptures. Um, Catholicity, they obviously can't. This is a big one when it comes to this claim. Why? Because they have to, because they have to say, well, we're not, we're actually not, we don't have to find ourselves within the historical church. We don't have to find ourselves, uh, doctrinally speaking, we don't have to find ourselves within the, the 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 Christian stream of thought concerning the Orthodox articles of the faith, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, and so on. We don't have to find ourselves within that. Why? Because the church was lost in the first century. Right. And there's so there's no accountability. Come 1830, there's no ecclesiastical accountability for someone like Joseph Smith. He's not held accountable to creeds or confessions or the historical confession of Christ as the God man. He's not held accountable to any of that because his fundamental claim is that all of the true church and what the true church confessed was lost in the first century. And that abstracts him, that removes him from any measure of doctrinal accountability, right? So they can't find themselves within the historical stream of Christian orthodoxy. So they don't meet the third mark. They don't meet apostolicity. Apostolicity, um, they have a continuing office they call the apostle or apostles, 12 at any given time to try to match the original number of the first century. Um, those apostles do things and say things that are contrary to the word of God and contrary to apostolic teaching. So they don't meet these marks. The church, and I mean the true church, not the Mormon, what they call the Mormon church, but the true church is an institution founded upon doctrines of the faith. Peter's confession. Think of Peter's confession. It's not founded on a man. It's not founded on a particular visible institution or organization. It's founded on the doctrines of the faith. It's founded on Christian theology given to us in the Holy Scriptures, all right? And Mormonism cannot uh, hold up to that test. Um, so the church was lost after the first century. That's the claim. 
The problem with that, most fundamentally, is that Jesus promised to build his church. The implication is that following the first century, Jesus immediately failed to complete that project or to cause that project to persevere. All right? Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18 that he would build his church. And the Mormon claim seems to be that he failed to complete that building project or failed to continue that building project upon the closure of the first century and the closure of the first century apostolic ministry because everything was lost right? until the 19th century. The second claim that they make is that there are three different gods in the Godhead. Using that language, Godhead, it's confusing. And it's confusing because we use the language of the Godhead. Christians have always used the language of the Godhead. Scripture uses the language of the Godhead. So they use that word and you think, oh, we're on the same team. Well, we're not because what is the Godhead? For them, the Godhead is a council of three beings, two of which are physically embodied. All right, so three different gods in the Godhead. I'll read what I read last week from Doctrine and Covenants, uh, which was written by Joseph Smith, supposedly uh, inspired. It's one of their authoritative works. The supreme governor of the universe and the father of mankind uh, is, is actually the Doctrine of Covenants is this. The father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. Now, in study helps, it expands upon that language. It says, God is the supreme governor of the universe and the father of mankind. We learn from the revelations that have been given that there are three separate, separate, we wouldn't say that as Christians, they're not separate, separate persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. From latter-day revelation, we learn that the Father and the Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone, and that the Holy Ghost is a personage of the Spirit, of Spirit without flesh and bone. All right. How do we think of this as Christians? Again, now under this second claim here on the board, we would respond, and we believe that that is heretical, that is fatally flawed because Christians have always confessed and scripture teaches clearly that there is one God who subsists in three persons. All right. There is one God. It's very important. We are monotheists. Right. We believe in in confessing one God. Mormons are not monotheists. They're polytheists. All right. Deuteronomy six, verse four, the fundamental confession of Israel Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there's a concern throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that there be confessed only one true God who is exalted above all of man's idols, all of the creations of man's hands, concrete, marble, wood, stubble, idols, that he is exalted above all the angels, that even admitting the goodness and the glory of angelic beings and the angelic host, God is yet above them. And there is only one God who is above all. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. Of whom are all things. Now, for Mormonism, what they call the Father 
would have at one time been in the same situation as the incarnate Christ. To uh, achieve uh, progression to a point where he eventually becomes God. So there's, there's some kind of an infinite regress of deity here. That even before what they call father, there was yet another father. And before that father, yet another father. And there's this infinite regress. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. This is the source and cause of all things that exist. So if he is the source and cause of all things that exist, he himself cannot be a creature. Otherwise that would not be true. And he says, we for him, Paul says that we are made for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. So you see a a doctrine of the Trinity there in that there is an identification of Father with the Son essentially, not personally, but essentially where you have all created things coming from the Father or they are of the Father through the Son. And so that precludes the Son from being a creature too because all created things are through Him. Through whom, through the Son, are all things and through whom we live. If all created things come through the Son, then the Son Himself cannot be created. Jesus says in John Gospel according to John, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. But then look what he says. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's an identification of essential power between Father and Son. They are the same essence, the same God. I, and then Jesus follows that up, I and my Father are one. That's John chapter 10. One in essence, they are the one God. So if you, when you eventually look through this outline, um, if you're not already looking at it, um, in some of these blocks where I, I contrast Christian orthodoxy with Mormonism, uh, you'll see uh, different sections. You'll see scripture under orthodoxy. You'll see uh, the orthodox claim there's one God subsisting in three persons. Then you'll see scripture. We've just made it through scripture. We've looked at scripture. Then you'll see creeds to demonstrate that this has been confessed, that the doctrine of the Trinity has been confessed throughout uh, the history of the church. We believe in one God, the Nicene Creed, um, the Chalcedonian definition, the Son is of the same essence, homoousios, as the Father according to his deity. All right, so that's the Chalcedonian definition. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. That's the Athanasian Creed. Very old documents confessing the same fundamental truth. One God in three persons. And then, of course, you have the confession, Second London Confession, chapter 2, article 1. The, just seconding what Scripture has already said. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, 
without body, contrary to the Mormon claim that God has, bought, has a body, without body, parts or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. That's Article 1. Then you get Article 2 with an expansion upon those attributes. Uh, and then you have Article 3 in Chapter 2 of the Confession that will expand upon the Trinity. That this is one God in three persons. So that's how we would want to respond to the second claim. Three different gods in the Godhead. Mormonism says our response is, no, there is but one God, one only living and true God, subsisting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. Ample biblical evidence to, um, to back that up. We'll, we'll look at a lot more, uh, exegetically, we'll look at the text more when we get to Jehovah's Witness uh, or the Watchtower Society, which will start next week. Uh, we'll look at a lot more uh, biblical uh, references and biblical language when it comes to um, the unity of the Godhead and uh, the, the, tri, uh, the Trinity. The second claim that they make, and actually I'm going to go to four because I reversed this as I wrote this down in my outline, four is where three is. So uh, Adam should be praised for the fall is their claim. He's to be celebrated for the fall. If not for his fall, they say, there would be no advancement and spiritual progress of humanity on this earth. Adam rightly should be honored, not denigrated. Now, on the one hand, you know, we agree with the sentiment that we don't want to denigrate Adam. Uh, who are we to do so? Uh, we, we are born in Adam and uh, responsible uh, for our sins and so on and so forth that we inherit from the first Adam. At the same time, we don't praise Adam for engaging in sin and rebellion against God. All right. Um, Adam's sin before God, the Orthodox Christian would respond to the Mormon, Adam's sin before God is lamentable. It's lamentable. Now, we, we looked at last week, I mentioned last week, there's a difference between praising the providences of God and what God has done even while using sin as a means to accomplish his will, because he does, even though he's not the author or creator of sin. There's a difference between praising God even in dark circumstances, knowing that he is right and true and that all that he ordains is right and good. Uh, there's a difference between that and honoring a sinful human being and their sin merely because God used it. Right? We don't honor men for sinning against God. You think of Scripture. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant... There they dealt treacherously with me. So God is comparing his people with Adam. Adam transgressed the covenant. His people transgressed the covenant. His people were treacherous. That's how he describes their behavior. And of course, by way of comparison, he would have said the same thing of Adam. Adam transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. That's Hosea 6-7. And then you have language in places like Genesis 6-6. God is lamenting sin, right? I mean, that's the revelation to us. 
The Lord was sorry. Now, we know that he didn't actually change his mind or repent or any of that. We know that this is correspondent to man's state of affairs or circumstances more so than it is God's. But it expresses something about God's immutable and perfect holiness in relation to sin. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. It's a grievous thing to sin against the holy God. So we don't celebrate men for falling. The confession says in 6.2, Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all. So not, not only did Adam fall and his sin is now imputed to us, but death came through this fall. And we're yet to praise Adam for bringing death into the world through his sin. I don't think so. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. That's chapter 8 of the confession. Enduring most grievous sorrows. You think about the suffering of our Savior which resulted ultimately from the sin of Adam and from our participation in that sin. And we're to praise the first Adam for falling. We're to praise the very explanation for why our Savior suffered. No. The fourth claim, again, I have it reversed here on the board, but the fourth claim is Adam is ancient of days. The order is really not that important. So if you have it written down like this, it's not a big deal. Adam is ancient of days. Remember what they say. They say, uh, according to study helps defining Adam. Adam is the ancient of days and is also known as Michael. He is the archangel and will come again to the earth in power and glory as the patriarch of the human family preparatory to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming back to Spring Hill, Missouri. So... Spring Hill, Missouri is the place of Adam's return. Uh, Spring Hill is named by the Lord, they claim, Adam, Andi, Amon, because said he, it is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people, or the Ancient of Days shall sit, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's Doctrine and Covenants 116, verse 1. What do we say to this? There's some staggering claims. We're not even getting into some of the most staggering claims that they make. These are perhaps the most, some of the most fundamental, especially number two and number one. Um, but there are some uh, even stranger things that are uh, confessed by the Mormon organization that would um, uh, cause our skin to crawl. Well, we would say, uh, instead of saying that the first Adam is the Ancient of Days, the second Adam is the Ancient of Days. Uh, who's the Ancient of Days? It's the Lord Jesus. It's the Son of God. Now, in a, in a sense, actually, if you look at da Daniel 7, you realize that the Ancient of Days is applied to both God and to our mediator. All right? um, Daniel 7, 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, that's language that uh, Scripture uses elsewhere, thinking of Revelation in particular, Revelation 1. Uh, applied to our Lord Jesus. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. That's Daniel 7, 9. In Revelation 1, 12 through 18, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when his sharp two-edged sword his word, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Is Adam the first? The first Adam is, is the first Adam the first and the last. Can he say that? No. And he never would now. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. All right. This is the same ancient of days that Mormonism says is the first Adam. And here we have. Traits that can only be ascribed to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This is uh, telling us in between Revelation 1 and Daniel 7, we know that the Lord Jesus is the Ancient of Days, the second Adam. Um, so we would want to say that, no, the first Adam is not the Ancient of Days. Don't be hoping anything concerning the first Adam. Don't be trusting anything regarding the first Adam. And indeed, if Adam could stand before you here today and preach to you, he'd say, look to Christ, look to Christ. Fifth claim, grace enables one to lay hold of eternal life only after they have expended their own best efforts. What's wrong with that? I mean, Isaiah tells us that our best efforts are but filthy rags in the, in the sight of God, right? Um, well, we'll look at more here, but the fundamental claim here is that you get access to the grace of God and redemption and spiritual progress and so on after you have expended your best efforts. Scripture says, we would want to say, that Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So before our best efforts, before our best works, our best deeds, Christ died for us. Our best deeds, our best ergon in the Greek. I'm just taking this opportunity to remember a vocabulary word that I need to know for a quiz tomorrow. So our best works before all of that. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace comes to us and has been worked for us even while we were yet sinners. Then we see places in, like in Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen in Christ before we did anything good or bad. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, our mediator, just before he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So it's not only after we expend our best efforts that we receive grace, God gives us his grace and has ordained his grace for us before we do anything good or bad. In the ancient literature, 
there's more, uh, many more places in Scripture we could go. Um, but I want to show how even throughout church history this has been professed. In ancient literature, there's a purpose of salvation. Uh, a purpose of salvation actually accomplished and applied to the Christian. Now, this isn't so much drawn out in the, in, in the early creeds. And it's not drawn out in the early creeds because the early creeds were really purposed to get God and Christology right, contrary to heresy um, that was being pushed back then. But even in the Nicene Creed, you have the language, for us, who's us? Well, it's Christians who profess the Nicene Creed. For us and for our salvation, there's a direct, definite purpose to Christ's redemptive work. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Right? So that God gives life. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Using the language of Acts 2.38. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life to, in the world to come. Christ came for us. And he came for us while we, were, while we were yet sinners. The confession on justification. Second uh, London 11, paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Not after our best efforts are expended. He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them. In other words, not because you've expended your best efforts, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for the whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. The chapter on good works, chapter 16, paragraph 5 says, we cannot, this is very important, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them, our best works, a great disproportion between them, by them it means our best works, and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us, even in our best, on our best days, that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins, by our best works, we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, so it's using that same language that, that Mormonism uses, but Mormonism says after we've done all we can, that's when we get, that's when we get grace. But what the confession says is after we've done all we can, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. We're unprofitable servants. Because it's all about Christ and the work of Christ and the grace of God through Christ. It's not about us. And because as they are good, they proceed when we do have good works, because as they are good, or insofar as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. We must be justified by Christ. Christ must die for us while we are yet sinners. Otherwise, there's no hope for us. I think we'll go ahead and 
and end there. We are 15 till. And hopefully that's a helpful um, kind of contrast between these essential claims of Mormonism and what Scripture teaches about what we ought to believe and how Christians have understood those things throughout the many, many centuries of the history of Christ's bride. Uh, We can kind of get an idea of how we should respond to these things, how we should think of these claims, right? Um, This is not what the church has believed. It's not what Scripture teaches. This is something that was inceived in 1830 and before i mean there this there was there's some things about mormonism that are uh, just ancient age-old heresies spun in a different direction from a different angle and using a little bit different terminology so with that said let's go ahead and pray um we'll take one or two minutes of questions is there any questions debbie Yes, yeah. Uh, That that was uh, chapter, I believe that was 16.5, yeah. Yeah. Now, in the back of the hymnal, you won't get the scripture proofs. Um, In the document that I sent to you in your emails, you get the printed text of scripture, the creed, or the confession, depending on what... uh, what is being um, referenced and then you get the scripture proofs as well all right so that's in the printout that i emailed to you any other question scott Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have all sorts of examples like that, you know, and 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 then and then the profound reality, I think, that helps us think about how important the grace of God is, is even in our best efforts. So I like that language in the in that in that paragraph is because even even in our best efforts, they're yet mixed with sin. They fall short of who God is. And if we think that our works match up to God's demand, we're sorely mistaken. And we, we, what we do in that assumption is we drag God down from glory and how holy he really is. And we, we drag him down to a level, if we could, we would drag him down to a level that would be agreeable to us. Um, but God is much too holy uh, for that. And we have to understand that even in our best works, we are uh, yet, in his eyes, unprofitable. It's the works of Christ that justify us and account for our rightness before God. So, Debbie. So do they hold the Book of Mormon above Scripture? It ends up being that way. I don't think you would get them to admit that it is, you know, better than Scripture or superior to Scripture. They would probably try to hold it more in tandem with Scripture. But you even get things in the study helps and, and other documents that will say, well, the Old and New Testaments tell us this. But we know from Latter-day Revelation that it's actually this. And so you have all sorts of implied contradictions between the Book of Mormon and the Old and New Testaments. So, um, yeah, well, they're even they're even in a sense, they're trying to correct the Old and New Testaments. Um, 
Again, you wouldn't get them to outrightly admit that, perhaps, but but so you see it. Yeah, yeah, you see it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anytime you add another authority alongside Scripture, rather than authority that's derived from Scripture, you automatically set up a, a dialectic. Right. You have to dismiss Scripture at some point. Um, it's what every every cult will run into that, by the way. So we'll see how that is. But um, okay, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll uh, transition to our morning service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray that you would uh, lead us and guide us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. That you would get all the glory uh, this morning and this afternoon. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>